This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 50, the Jack Abramoff scandal. The next time a stranger asks what you do for a living, respond, I'm a Washington lobbyist. Then count how many seconds it takes them to politely exit the conversation. Lobbying is the process of advocating to elected officials on behalf of an organization or interest group. And it's perhaps the most universally despised line of work in the United States. That's at least partly because of one man, Jack Abramoff. Before he went to jail, Jack didn't think of himself as a symbol of Washington corruption. In fact, he considered himself, in his own words, among the top moral people in the business. That's how distorted reality can get from the inside of a political scandal. Jack Abramoff was buying votes. He was whining and dining congressmen at his own restaurant, which he opened for the sole purpose of entertaining elected officials. He was cheating his Native American clients out of millions while secretly referring to them by racist epithets. If that's how a moral lobbyist operates, I'd hate to meet an immoral one. When Jack Abramoff finally answered for his crimes, he took a House Majority Leader down with him and arguably swayed the results of two national elections. But that's not the most shocking thing about this story. For that, you'll have to wait until we tell you where convicted felon Jack Abramoff is now. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. There's being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and then there's Jack Abramoff. 
Born on February 28, 1959, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Abramoff grew up mostly in Beverly Hills. His father was a credit card executive, and his mother was a homemaker. At Beverly Hills High School, Abramoff was both a football star and a weightlifting champion. He was also a prize-winning bully. His high school classmate, the late food critic Jonathan Gold, alleged Jack Abramoff once pushed him and his cello down a flight of stairs. His parents weren't particularly observant Jews, but Jack decided as a preteen to convert to the more conservative, traditional Orthodox Jewish tradition. More conservative was Jack's motto for life as a young man. Growing up in the freewheeling 1970s apparently only made him lean farther to the right. In 1980, Jack was a junior studying English at Brandeis University, and Ronald Reagan was a former actor running for president. As chairman of the Massachusetts Alliance of College Republicans, Jack volunteered for Reagan's campaign and organized other college students to do the same. After Reagan's landslide victory ushered in a new era of conservatism in 1981, Jack was elected chairman of the College Republican National Committee. This wasn't your typical student government election. He had a full-time campaign manager, Grover Norquist, who would go on to be arguably America's most prominent anti-taxation activist. Jack didn't run for chairman just to add a shiny new title to his resume. He had a plan. By pushing the college Republicans farther to the right, he believed he could pressure elected Republicans to remain accountable to conservatives. Right-wing candidates would be able to count on the college Republicans to drum up public support, while perceived centrists would be hung out to dry. This was an early blueprint for his later high-pressure tactics as a lobbyist. In addition to organizing support for Republican campaigns, under Abramoff's leadership, the college Republicans weighed in on foreign policy. They supported the invasion of Grenada and spoke out against what they called KGB propaganda, criticizing the apartheid government of South Africa. Remember, this was the height of the Cold War. Americans lived in fear of the USSR. Public schools held nuclear attack drills and built bomb shelters. And nobody hated communists more than Jack Abramoff. He made it his personal mission to do whatever he could to destroy the Soviets. In 1982, Jack headed off to law school at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. In 1984, he addressed the Republican National Convention. He might have been the brightest rising star in the entire Republican Party. But after graduating with his J.D. in 1986, instead of looking for public policy work or joining a campaign, he moved back home to Los Angeles and started a film production company, Regency Entertainment. He also founded a think tank, the International Freedom Foundation, or IFF, ostensibly to oppose communism around the world. After five years in D.C., Jack had decided that the best way to help Ronald Reagan win the Cold War was by bringing his ideas to the big screen. Liberal Hollywood wouldn't know what hit them. Not only did Jack have the American way on his side, he had a secret weapon, 
the embattled South African government was allegedly funneling money to him through his think tank, the IFF. Though Abramoff did manage to fund and produce an anti-communist action film titled Red Scorpion, it wasn't exactly a hit. After spending twice the original $8 million budget, the 1989 film only earned a little more than $4 million at the box office. It also drew sharp criticism for breaking the international boycott against South Africa by filming in one of its territories. But for Jack, the moral trade-off was worth it. He thought of communism as a massive existential threat to the world. It was worth compromising any of his other values to fight it. Even after being accused in the media of supporting apartheid, he kept taking South Africa's money to the tune of $1.5 million annually. In exchange, the International Freedom Foundation helped the South African government portray anti-apartheid activists like Nelson Mandela as terrorists. This was Jack's first real taste of the dark side of political influence. He recruited Republican politicians to join and support the IFF without telling them where its funding came from. Then, he successfully pressured those same officials to oppose economic sanctions against South Africa. Jack would later claim he had no idea South Africa was funding his think tank. But experts say there is no way he could have been in the dark about where his own organization's money came from. It would have taken a remarkably dim-witted and incurious founder not to know where he was getting that $1.5 million a year. On December 31, 1991, the USSR formally ceased to exist. The Cold War was over, leaving Jack Abramoff feeling victorious, but directionless. The American people, no longer in a panic about the Soviet threat, elected Democrat Bill Clinton as president in 1992. That same year, Nelson Mandela successfully pressured the South African government to stop funding the IFF. Deprived of cash, the think tank shut down in 1993. Soon, Regency Entertainment Group passed its expiration date, too. Jack finally had to accept that his film career was dead in the water and his cause celebre was out of steam. He'd have to find some other purpose in life besides destroying communism. So in 1994, Jack threw himself into the fight to restore Republicans to power in Washington. For the first time, he put his Georgetown law degree to use, joining the high-powered firm of Preston, Gates, and Ellis as a lobbyist. They were excited about his already close relationships with Republican officials, including Congressman Tom DeLay and Newt Gingrich. On November 8, 1994, for the first time in 40 years, the Republican Party gained control of both houses of Congress. They took down 34 incumbents, including the sitting Speaker of the House. Newt Gingrich took up the Speaker's gavel and proceeded to slash taxes, cut government spending, and dismantle welfare programs. His influence on 1994's election was so significant, it was called the Gingrich Revolution. 
this was all music to Jack Abramoff's ears. His college Republican friends, including Grover Norquist and far-right evangelical Christian Ralph Reed, were suddenly among the most powerful thinkers in Washington. His friend Tom DeLay became House Whip. With the Soviet Union no longer serving as America's most prominent enemy, atheism and liberalism became the villains of the day for conservatives. Elected officials were falling all over each other to tout their evangelical bona fides. They boasted about their desire to balance the federal budget, but behind closed doors, they demanded huge pork projects for their home districts. Into this maelstrom of hysteria swaggered Jack Abramoff, ready to make some money. First, he'd need a new niche. He cast his eyes around Washington and saw no deep pockets desperately in need of a lobbyist. But farther south in Mississippi, he found something promising. The Band of Choctaw, a Native American tribe that could afford his costly services thanks to their tribally owned casinos. Two Republican congressmen had proposed legislation to tax Native American tribal casinos. Abramoff swooped into Mississippi and signed the Choctaws as a client, promising to do everything he could to keep their business tax-exempt. We don't know exactly how much the Mississippi Choctaw paid Abramoff in 1995, but it was enough to induce him to get Tom DeLay on their side. The majority whip opposed the bill to tax Native American casinos, even though it was proposed by two members of his own party. Jack Abramoff had scored his first big victory as a Washington lobbyist. In a perfect world, lobbyists are like attorneys making a case in court. They simply present lawmakers with information and make an argument for their position. Successful lobbying by itself is neither a crime nor a scandal, as long as they don't exchange something of value for an elected official's support, that is. Buying votes is bribery and has been illegal for hundreds of years. But in reality, lobbyists are incentivized to get lawmakers on their side, no matter what it takes. With millions of dollars on the line, many lobbyists don't ask, is this the right thing to do? Or even, is this legal? They ask, will I get away with it? And Jack was willing to bet he could get away with a whole heck of a lot. He showed little respect for the law, ethics, or even for his own clients. Abramoff privately used horrifying racial slurs to describe the Native American tribes he worked with. In one email later made public, he complained, I have to meet with the monkeys from the Choctaw Tribal Council. In another, he called Native Americans troglodytes and morons. But no matter how much he looked down on them, you couldn't deny that Jack Abramoff got results for his clients. At least, at first. Before he got so greedy that he threw them under the bus just to bilk them for even more money. Before he started joking about writing a book called The Idiot's Guide to Buying a Congressman. Before he started cheating the tribes out of millions. After the break, Abramoff goes from effective but racist lobbyist to criminal and con artist. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to the story. In 1995, high-dollar conservative lobbyist Jack Abramoff signed his first Native American tribal client, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw. He was well on his way to being nicknamed Casino Jack, the go-to lobbyist for any tribe looking to protect their gambling interests. And before Jack came along, tribal casinos had essentially no lobbying presence in Washington. After his success in defeating a 1995 bill that would have taxed Native American casino profits, Jack Abramoff became a celebrity in the tribal gambling world. His clients had no idea he privately called natives troglodytes, monkeys, and morons. In an interview with Washington Business Forward, Jack painted a very different picture of his views. He said, Lots of bad things have been served up to happen to the Indian tribes. The role that we've played in helping them, whether it's fighting efforts to tax them or other indignities, that makes me feel good. That was always how it was with Jack. One person in public, another in private. It was the same with his second big lobbying success, this time for the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. The CNMI, located north of Guam in the Pacific Ocean, is an American protectorate. Inhabitants of the CNMI are U.S. citizens under the jurisdiction of the President of the United States, but they can't vote in U.S. federal elections. And as a U.S. territory, the CNMI is allowed to mark goods manufactured there as made in the USA. If you're thinking this sounds pretty attractive to unscrupulous companies, you're right. In 1995, when Jack Abramoff first signed the CNMI as a client, the region was known as a hotbed for sweatshops. Not only were the islands exempted from U.S. minimum wage laws, they didn't have to enforce U.S. immigration laws either, meaning companies could easily set up factories, import the cheapest labor available, and underpay them. Worse still, women lured to the islands with the promise of sweatshop jobs were often sold into sexual slavery. A few Democratic legislators had an idea about changing all this. They introduced a bill to take away the exemptions from minimum wage and immigration laws. That's where Jack came in to lobby against this measure at the princely rate of $100,000 per month. Again, there was one Jack in public and another in private. The public Jack said he was only fighting for freedom. He described the Northern Marianas as a kind of libertarian utopia. If the CNMI wanted to allow the free market to set the prevailing local wage, they should be able to do it. But in private, he had a more practical approach to swaying lawmakers tropical vacations. Abramoff paid for lawmakers' trips to the Marianas, including Tom DeLay and two key Democratic congressmen. 
In the Pacific archipelago, the congressmen could avail themselves of all an island nation with few laws and even less law enforcement had to offer. Of course, Jack made sure the American people could never find out what, exactly, was on the itinerary. Privacy was part of his stock in trade as a congressional travel agent. But whatever DeLay and his Democratic colleagues enjoyed in the CNMI, it was enough to convince them to preserve the Marianas exemptions from U.S. minimum wage and immigration laws. Another big win for Casino Jack and a success for his first outing as a junket planner. Over the next several years, Jack Abramoff only got richer and more powerful. His standard lobbying rate increased from $100,000 to $150,000 per month. He signed five more Native American tribes as clients, firmly establishing himself as the go-to guy for tribal gaming interests. There were three key offenses in the Abramoff playbook, pressure, perks, and pay. He got his Christian conservative allies, especially activist Ralph Reed, to organize evangelical groups against whatever legislation Abramoff wanted to defeat. He funded lavish vacations for lawmakers in the guise of fact-finding missions. He gave elected officials significant gifts, including tickets to sporting events and concerts, and he funneled his clients' money directly into campaigns. If you're wondering why Ralph Reed would mobilize the evangelical community to protect Native American casinos, the answer is simple. Money. In 1999 alone, Jack Abramoff gave Reed over $1 million of the Choctaw tribe's money. To hide the transaction, he had his clients donate the money to Grover Norquist's advocacy group, Americans for Tax Reform. They dutifully passed it along to Reed, and in return, Reed worked to defeat a bill that would have legalized gambling at dog racing tracks. The Choctaw Casino avoided a new source of competition in the gambling market, Ralph Reed lined his pockets, and Jack Abramoff earned millions that year. Everyone won, except, of course, American voters. The more often this worked, and it worked every time, the bolder Jack got. In May of 2000, Jack sent his pal Tom DeLay to Scotland to hit the links at the world's oldest golf course, the St. Andrews Links. In a blatant violation of house ethics rules, Jack used his own credit card to buy Tom's flight. Elected officials aren't supposed to accept gifts from lobbyists for obvious reasons. Even if there's a pre-existing personal relationship, at best, accepting a gift like that looks improper. And at worst, of course, it's bribery. Which is exactly what Jack himself has admitted he was doing. At the peak of his lobbying career, Abramoff says he spent over a million dollars annually just on gifts for legislators, their families, and their staffers. That's not counting campaign cash. While he was whining and dining and bribing, Jack was also working out how to invest in his own future. At some point in 2000, he heard of a fleet of gambling boats that were up for sale. 
In partnership with businessman Adam Kedan, he decided to buy the boats. But instead of ponying up the $23 million down payment for real, the two investors presented a fake wire transfer to their bank as proof of funds. The bank then agreed to lend them $60 million to complete the deal. Jack was now a floating casino entrepreneur. Also in the year 2000, Abramoff was given the title of pioneer by George W. Bush's presidential campaign, meaning he'd raised at least $100,000 for the future president. A lot of that came in the form of large donations from Abramoff himself, as well as from his friends and family. Of course, we all know what happened in that election. Bush won, and Jack Abramoff was immediately appointed to his White House transition advisory team. It's pretty typical for transition teams to feature a lot of big donors and lobbyists. Patronage, the practice of handing out a plum position in exchange for support, has been alive and well in the White House since the country's founding. In addition to his new White House position, Jack kept right on whining and dining lawmakers. Abramoff would later estimate that during the Bush years, he had a, quote, strong influence on about 100 members of the U.S. House of Representatives. One of his best tactics for obtaining that influence? Go through a key staffer. Abramoff would identify someone the legislator trusted, then offer them a lucrative job as a lobbyist. Anyone who accepted was immediately put to work influencing their former boss. Speaking of bosses, by 2001, Jack wasn't real fond of his boss. He was still working for Preston Gates and Ellis, the Seattle-based law firm that gave him his first job as a D.C. lobbyist. He felt underappreciated for the vast revenues he brought in. Worse still, one of the partners criticized his tactics, telling him, you're going to end up dead, disgraced, or in jail. To state the obvious, that partner was right. Maybe if Jack had listened, he still could have changed in time to avoid prosecution. Instead, he quit Preston Gates and joined another firm, Greenberg Traurig. He brought with him clients worth $6 million in annual billings. The loss of Jack Abramoff caused Preston Gates' lobbying revenues to drop by half. Jack was the ultimate big fish. The six million that walked in the door with him on day one was game-changing by itself. Before 2001 was out, Jack Abramoff had increased lobbying revenues at Greenberg Traurig by 500%. The firm was growing so fast, it jumped from the 16th largest lobbying firm in Washington to the fourth. After his job change, Jack made a few more big moves too. First, he partnered up with Michael Scanlon, Tom DeLay's former press secretary. Scanlon had founded a lobbying firm of his own, Capital Campaign Strategies. Jack and Scanlon cut a deal, which they called Gimme Five. Abramoff would refer tribes to Scanlon, telling them they needed to hire a second lobbyist. Scanlon would charge the clients for his services, then cut Abramoff in on the proceeds, rinse and repeat. For Abramoff, this was all a side dish. Influence peddling was more fun for him than just filling his bank account. 
He spent much of his time working towards opening a kosher Washington, D.C. restaurant where he could entertain legislators. For instance, his buddy Tom DeLay, who in 2003 was promoted to House Majority Leader. Even though the double billing scam wasn't Jack's primary focus, it yielded dividends immediately. One of Abramoff's tribal clients hired Scanlon as an additional lobbyist to advance their interests. They had no idea Abramoff would get a huge kickback from the exorbitant fees they paid to Scanlon. Not to mention, Abramoff was still billing them directly for his own services. Next, Abramoff lobbied in favor of a gambling ban in Texas. Hardly Casino Jack's usual kind of thing, but as always, he had an agenda. His Louisiana clients didn't want the competition from the state next door. And his Texas clients, the Tigua Tribal Nation? They had to close their casino. But Jack had a plan for that, too. While the bill was in the works, he offered the Tigua his lobbying services to oppose the ban he'd helped to create. When they signed on the dotted line, Abramoff jetted off to the golf course in Scotland with Congressman Bob Ney. The goal was to get Bob to insert some sneaky language into a bill which would grant the Tigua gambling rights despite the statewide casino ban. Jack's trip was unsuccessful, but his clients paid through the nose for it anyway. A reasonable person might wonder if Jack felt bad about screwing over his own clients. The answer to that is a resounding no. Here's one 2002 email exchange between Abramoff and Scanlon about the Tigua tribe. Jack Abramoff writes, Fire up the jet, baby. We're going to El Paso. Mike Scanlon replies simply, I want all their money. Money was typed in all caps, by the way. All this wheeling and dealing was an incredible source of income. Abramoff and Scanlon build a combined estimated $66 million just to Native American tribes. Sometimes, as in the Tigua situation, Abramoff was billing both sides in an ongoing conflict. It was the perfect scam. The only problem was, over the years, Jack's aggressive tactics had made him as many enemies as friends. And in 2004, they launched a sneak attack that Abramoff never saw coming. After the break, the House of Cards falls. And now, back to the story. By 2004, Jack Abramoff was on top of the lobbying game in a way nobody had ever been. He was openly entertaining a room full of legislators, staffers, and White House functionaries every night at his own D.C. restaurant signatures. He had a reputation as Congress's personal travel agent, flouting House ethics rules by putting legislators' elaborate golf trips on his personal credit card. He was also bilking his own clients out of millions. One tribe alone, the Louisiana Cushada, paid Jack Abramoff and his partner in grift, Michael Scanlon, over $32 million in lobbying fees. Abramoff and Scanlon worked together to convince clients to pay them both for the same service, then split the proceeds. When Jack Abramoff was treating, you lived large. 
He didn't just send congressmen and their families to sporting events. He bought out huge blocks of VIP tickets and encouraged them to invite their biggest donors from their home districts, two dozen of them at a time. And as for campaign donations, he spread them around. Most went to prominent Republicans, but he gave to key Democrats too. So did his clients, under his direction. If you asked Jack Abramoff, it wasn't impressive that he could influence 100 votes in the House at any given time. It was the 335 votes he hadn't bought that kept him up at night. But Jack should have been losing sleep over a completely different group of people, the DC press. Over the years, Jack hadn't exactly taken pains to hide his outsized influence. A group of reporters were investigating allegations that Native American tribes were paying Abramoff and Scanlon 10 to 20 times more than other lobbyists were paid for similar services. On February 22, 2004, a front-page Washington Post story revealed that the two men had raked in $45 million and counting from their tribal clients. Overcharging for your services isn't illegal. Fraud, on the other hand, is. And it would be pretty hard to convince clients to pay you 10 to 20 times the norm without committing some sort of fraud along the way. The Senate Indian Affairs Committee smelled a big, fat, Jack Abramoff-sized rat the moment the Post story ran. Within days, they began an investigation. Abramoff's stock in trade was congressmen, not senators. He didn't have enough friends in the Senate to stop them from poking around. Still hoping things would blow over, Jack Abramoff resigned from his lobbying firm Greenberg Traurig. He decided the best way to handle any and all interrogation by the Indian Affairs Committee was to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. As the Indian Affairs Committee bumped up against a brick wall named Jack Abramoff, the Washington Post kept investigating. They got a hold of Jack's disparaging emails about his tribal clients and published excerpts. It was also Post reporters who discovered one big smoking gun, Jack's credit card, which he used to pay for Tom DeLay's golf trip to Scotland. The House Majority Leader was now directly implicated in what was becoming the biggest scandal in the history of lobbying. In September of 2004, Jack was called before the Indian Affairs Committee and refused to answer questions. In November, Michael Scanlon did the same during his questioning. Finally, after seven months of investigating, the committee announced its conclusions. Scanlon and Abramoff had billed $66 million to six Native American tribes and they might have been bribing voters in tribal elections to ensure they kept getting their lobbying business. It wasn't immediately clear whether or not this was illegal. Unethical, yes, but it wasn't a crime unless that $66 million was actually used to bribe government officials. Again, that's where the media comes in. By now, Jack Abramoff was just about the most hated man in America. The Washington Post team was on its way to the Pulitzer Prize with their ongoing investigation. 
The reporting called attention to a previously overlooked aspect of the scandal. The deal in 2000 in which Abramoff and a business partner bought a fleet of casino boats. The Post was mostly interested in the two high-profile names listed as references for the $60 million loan, a Tom DeLay staffer and Republican Congressman Dana Rohrbacher. But the reports drew prosecutors' attention to the transaction. Remember, Abramoff and his partner Adam Kadan had faked a $23 million wire transfer in order to make the bank think they already delivered a down payment. In other words, they'd committed a felony. On August 11th of 2005, Abramoff and Kadan were indicted on fraud charges. Abramoff and Kadan entered guilty pleas. It was pretty clear that Abramoff wasn't going to get away with this one. And the American people weren't going to be satisfied to see him go down for a fraudulent wire transfer. They wanted blood for his flagrant bribery. By now, Abramoff's old friends were rushing to distance themselves, pretending they'd never even met him. In an interview, Abramoff joked about such claims by former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. As he showed a Vanity Fair reporter several photos of himself with Newt, Abramoff teased, I have more pictures of him than I have of my wife. Newt again, it's sick. I thought he never met me. As quickly as they'd rushed toward Abramoff when he was waving VIP concert tickets and all expenses paid flights, representatives and staffers now ran as far and as fast as they could away from him. By the end of 2005, 12 members of Congress announced they would return their campaign donations from Abramoff and his associates. And yet, for all the hype about Jack, it was Michael Scanlon who was charged with bribery first. On November 21, 2005, Abramoff's former partner in crime entered a guilty plea in federal court. It's pretty typical for federal prosecutors to indict smaller fish before bigger ones. The idea is to set up exactly what happened. The lower-level criminals cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for leniency. Their testimony then helps to convict the person the feds really want to nail to the wall, or sometimes just knowing that their Confederates have already flipped is enough to get a guilty plea from the big fish, too. That's exactly how things worked out for Jack. In January of 2006, he pled guilty to mail fraud, conspiracy, wire fraud, and tax evasion. With his emails already leaked to the media, he could see his own handwriting on the wall. It's always taxes. Didn't anybody learn anything from Al Capone? If you're going to steal or grift, find a way to pay taxes on the proceeds. The IRS always gets their share in the end. After Jack copped his plea, even more lawmakers were pressured to return his donations or give the money to charity. This second batch of elected officials included President George W. Bush and House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. The latter in particular was under fire for his close relationship to Jack Abramoff. His luxury golf trip on Jack's dime infuriated voters. 
George W. Bush tried to save the majority leader, even making a public show of support by inviting him aboard Air Force One. But the image of DeLay boarding another fancy plane just reminded his constituents of all the flights Jack Abramoff paid for. In March of 2006, Jack Abramoff and Adam Kadan were both sentenced to almost six years in prison. Both were allowed to stay out of jail temporarily in exchange for their help with a broader investigation into congressional corruption. With Abramoff now on the side of federal prosecutors, Tom DeLay's time was up. In April, he resigned his seat in Congress. DeLay was later tried and convicted of money laundering, but the conviction was overturned on appeal. Even as a free man, however, he was damaged goods in Washington. He couldn't even get work as a lobbyist. A brief attempt to rehabilitate his reputation by appearing on Dancing with the Stars didn't bear fruit. It turns out the only person who really wanted to make Tom DeLay dance was Jack Abramoff. Meanwhile, the federal investigation into Abramoff's associates got broader and broader thanks to their star witnesses' cooperation. Jack cheerfully named names and revealed details of exactly how he bribed the legislators. Ultimately, over 20 people were convicted in connection with the Abramoff scandal. Among them was former Congressman Bob Ney, who admitted to taking a bribe. He became the only elected official to serve jail time as a result of Abramoff's activities. Plenty of staffers and lower-level public officials were thrown under the bus, but of the 100 congressmen Abramoff once boasted of controlling, only Ney was ever even charged. After the bribery probe had gotten all it could out of its big fish, it was finally time for Jack to face the music. He reported to the Cumberland Minimum Security Prison on November 15, 2006. The man who once billed no less than $150,000 per month was forced to work as a dishwasher in prison for 12 cents an hour. Out of those earnings, he was expected to start making a dent in the court-ordered $25 million in restitution he owed his tribal clients and his $1.7 million tax debt. While Abramoff scrubbed pans in the clink, the wider world remained horrified by his revelations about Washington corruption. George W. Bush never personally faced consequences for his ties to Abramoff, unless you count returning some money, that is. But his party suffered historic losses in the 2006 elections on a scale comparable to the 1994 Gingrich Revolution. Disgust with Republican corruption continued, and it helped to propel Barack Obama to a presidential victory in 2008. The young, charismatic Obama and his support for campaign finance reform even appealed to some Republican voters who felt betrayed by people like Tom DeLay. There's a natural follow-up question here, and that is, did anything change in Washington? If you believe Jack Abramoff, that's a big fat no. Since his 2010 release, Jack is on the record saying that everything he did in the 2000s he could do today. 
Despite some attempts at campaign finance reform, large campaign donations have only become easier to make in recent years thanks to a series of Supreme Court decisions. Most famously, the Citizens United decision in 2010 led to the creation of super PACs, political action committees with absolutely no legal limit on donation sizes. In an interview with CBS, Abramoff put it simply, you can't take a congressman to lunch for $25 and buy him a hamburger or a steak or something like that. But you can take him to a fundraising lunch and not only buy him that steak, but give him $25,000 extra and call it a fundraiser. There's one more big glaring sign that Jack Abramoff truly believes Congress is still available for purchase. You guessed it, he's lobbying again. After a brief stint as a campaign finance reform activist, Jack Abramoff re-registered in 2016 as a federal lobbyist. These days, his big crusade is against the Green New Deal, a package of climate legislation championed by left-of-center elected officials, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In a recent fundraising pitch to his supporters, Abramoff wrote, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wasn't even in diapers when I started fighting the left, and I'm about to teach her and her cronies a few things they are going to wish they never learned. And it won't just be a math lesson. Jack Abramoff subtracted ethics, multiplied his fees, divided his clients, and added a few bribes. The product of this fuzzy math was a years-long corruption probe, followed by a stint in jail. Let's hope, for the sake of the American voter, that this time the arithmetic problem he's talking about is the federal budget. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 49, the Chappaquiddick incident, where we dig into the question of whether or not Ted Kennedy got away with murder. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Trent Williamson. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>